tax, I guess, on people that own 26 to 100 properties. And we're supposed to trust the local government to take that extra uh, yeah. 3%, <laughs> put it in some bank account, open up a grant system and offer that money to other first-time home buyers as some sort of like down payment assistance. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, basically big red flag. That's another thing that the real estate heavyweights could offer as a service. You know, we a little bit heavier. We could just walk peer and beam houses <laughs> and just like, hey, it's going to be squishy for you us. May, yeah. uh, Ms. Johnson, 115 pounds. You may not realize it, but that floor is a little soft. You are now listening to the Real Estate Heavyweights Podcast. You see this guy here staring back at you? That's your toughest opponent. Every time you get into the ring, that's who you're going against. I believe that in boxing, and I do believe that in life. Your weekly deep dive into DFW real estate, life, and beyond. With your hosts, Tavis Westbrook and Ashton Hines. Well, good morning and welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Heavyweights Podcast. As I am already saying hello, and then I'm looking to make sure I'm recording on the right mic, and, and so is Tavis. So we've we've had a few uh, technical difficulties in the last couple uh, podcasts, and you know it's one of those things, you got these checklists, like, okay, is this right? Is this right? I'm getting more used to it, but sometimes I just, I just start going, so... Uh, I am Ashton Hines, half of the Real Estate Heavyweights. I uh, am a physical therapist assistant, full-time running around town. I'm also a realtor. Uh, I've got a goal of this year doing 100 open houses. So a lot of my social media lately is me uh, going to open houses. And I also invest. uh, Recently, I finished my flip number four. That flip I bought from one Tavis Westbrook, a, a real estate friend, mentor, guru here in the Dallas area. He's done over 200 flips. He's got commercial, he's got midterm rentals, long-term rentals, and he's here with us, the other half of the real estate heavyweights. What's going on, Tavis? Hey, good morning. I am the other side of the heavyweight podcaster, the heavier side, mind you. I don't know, man. <laughs> you are doing a good job. You are sliding down the scale. I The last couple of times I've seen you, I could definitely tell a difference in I, uh, I have been creeping up, so I, I, I got to get <laughs> well, on the, the ball it. here. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's been good back in the gym, back in the routine, you know, feels good. Put it all back together. Unfortunately, I think my dogs are getting neglected. They're looking at me every morning. Like, <laughs> why aren't we going on that walk? You know, when yeah. I'm running out the door to go to the gym. So, right. <laughs> well, maybe they so can I gotta, get a I got to make time for both. Right. I got to do the two a days and at least yeah, do a two a day on the walk. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, the last couple of times we've talked about, you know, Tavis has got some midterm rentals that he's been renting out. I assume those have all been rented and you're just kind of hoping that they settle in and there's no big issues after they, they get started at their place. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's happy right now. I've got one in Richardson becoming available here towards the end of the month. And uh, I've been getting quite a bit of inquiries on it, but nothing's really sticking so far. So you know, as we've talked before, and as you guys have witnessed, you know, that can change in a matter of, you know, 30 minutes to an hour <laughs> sometimes yep. on, on getting yep. somebody. So, um, it, the good news is that one has actually been booked most of the year through the Airbnb platform. So, okay, uh, we, you know, register now as a, you know, super host and that property shows up as a, you know, a guest favorite and all of that. So that's great. Um, nice. Yeah. How's the uh, flip going over in Wiley? Have you been 
you've been posting some videos. Looks like the guys are making really, really good progress over there. Yeah, they're doing well. Um, I, I was just on the phone here a little while ago with the guy that's going to do uh, some trim work and hardware work, and he was trying to, you know, he's kind of a new guy that I'm I'm trying out, and <laughs> he was pushing back a little bit on my rules about no shoes on the carpet, and mm-hmm. you know that that was going to be hard to relay to his guys, you know, because he didn't have booties and. He's going to have to get booties for him. I said, tell him to take their damn shoes off. That's fine. Right. And he's like, you know, they, they, we need to do it fast. And I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're trying to, do you want me to come after you after they, you know, get mud all over the carpet? I don't think so. Yeah. So just follow the rules, man. So. Yeah, I know. You're, you're, you taught me that. Put the signs up. Make sure everybody knows. I've learned and the hard I caught way. myself. <laughs> yeah. When I caught myself, you know, I would run over there for five minutes and then I would keep my shoes on. Inevitably, I'm in there and then one of the subs would walk in. I'm like, dang it. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm walking around the house. <laughs> Fortunately, at Mapleton, it was all wood floors and, and tile, but you still don't want to scratch things up. But yeah, it's one of those things where if you just lay the rules down, everyone kind of, you know, and this is a newer guy for you. You know, most of your guys have worked for you for long enough. They just kind of know the system and yeah. I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll figure it out or, you know, you'll have to come back and say, look, <laughs> uh, that front carpet is no bueno. So, uh, so we're, we're good, man. We got, uh, uh stagers teed up. Um, she's on schedule. I told her maybe end of the next week, I need to get the cleaning crew in there. I've got, uh, yeah. window crew. I, I hired, a separate window cleaning crew that I've been very happy with in the past. They've done my commercial building. They've done my personal house, you know, like, uh, once a year, you know, they come to my personal home yeah. and uh, they do an amazing job and they're very affordable. Yeah, I need their number. Um, yeah, man. I need uh, their number. It's a, that's a mess. Um, <laughs> it's a mess. Out there. But you know, this house is a giant two story. And so I'm like, yeah, there's no way I can expect my cleaning crew Normally, I get the cleaning crew to handle the windows at the same time, but this house has a lot of glass, and it's mm. two stories, and the ceilings are 19 feet throughout the majority of the house, and yeah, I, I was just like, I need to just separate this, get a cleaning crew out, do the windows, and then have the cleaning crew just focused on the rest of the house. So, yeah, it'll be more cool. efficient that way. Well, good deal. Well, I have a, I've been working over in um, in Richardson to try to get that house uh, sold, or where we have a contract on a house. Our investor friend now, Aaron, he is uh, he put an offer on a house over in Richardson. Uh, we went back and forth. I think he got a good deal on it. We were hoping to get it for a little cheaper. Tavis and I were kind of pushing from more of the investor side of, Hey, you know, you know, Tavis happened to know how much the house next door had sold to for to an investor in the previous year. And so we had some inside knowledge of like, look, you know, this the offer we gave is not an investor offer. And I think the the homeowners were sort of in, interpreting it as like, look, you're trying to take advantage of us and make money and we're just trying to get out of this. And like, no, actually, a, a real investor offer was made on the house next to you. And it was about, <laughs> you know, 200,000 less than what we're offering. So I think we're going to talk about this later in the show is just you know, sellers expectations and some of the things that they miss on valuation. And because we, Tavis and I walked a, a potential uh, purchase over in a similar neighborhood, actually Canyon Creek and Richardson. And, you know, a- after we walked and we looked at it and I guess Tavis gave the number, you know, the sellers, you know, idea of what they were supposed to get out of it was just far and away above what you probably is realistic, but I'm sure that happens a lot. So we're going to try to dive into some of that, but, uh, the Richardson house, it's going well. We're through the option period. We had asked for a lot of things on the option period and they said, no, thank you. And so, um, Aaron, 
is really excited about the house. And Tavis, I think, is going to get to do the design work over there. And so that's going to be cool. I, you know, getting to work with Tavis there kind of on a different relationship. I'm re- representing the uh, buyer and he's going to turn it into a really neat midterm rental. And we met with the uh, interior designer that he's going to use that he has a relationship with. And so Tavis is going to be doing that. So that'll be, I think that'll be a fun project, hopefully coming up soon. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'll be cool. I'm, I'm excited to tackle that one. And, and he's a, he's a pretty uh, easy going, you know, visionary based client. You know, I think, you know, obviously one of your easiest traditional clients you've ever dealt with. Um, yes. And because I think, you know, the advice and opinion coming from us were, were pretty strong to try to negotiate this thing down based on the findings. And he was just, you know, hindsight was like, no, I want it. What do we have to do to keep it? You know? And yeah. So, he's, he's looking at the big picture, you know, and he's got a vision for building, you know, a portfolio of these things and he's in it for yeah. the long game. And so he doesn't want to take huge losses on any one thing, obviously, but he's going to hold this house for a long time. And so, you know, he, you know, instead of trying to get it down and let's say another 25 grand before the, the purchase, you know, he's looking at it. I'm going to have it for 10 years. Let's he's go ahead on and, the, yeah, he's betting on the, on the rapid appreciation yeah, for this, yeah. this area. And, and, and that yeah, is, and that's understandable. That is true. It just also, there's those other elements, right. That we were trying to kind of, you know, coach him through that it lacks some wow factors, you know, and so, and, and it lacks some architectural things that we couldn't change. So, right. Um, I think but we're going to was... be able to design it. I think what, by the time it's done and we open up the kitchen, you do your thing and the designer, like, I think the vision for it is awesome. And it was, you know, some of these things that we found on the inspection, like big things, like we're going to have to replace the, the suet, the, the cast iron, the pool had some pretty serious problems. And it's like, you know, we're going to have to fix these regardless. And so we're trying to get some concession there. But at the end of the day, you know, he's super excited about it. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to look awesome when it's done. The neighborhood, I actually really sold that, the neighborhood for him because we were looking at a different part of town. I mean, man, this Canyon Creek is really great. And I think the more time he spent over there, Canyon Creek area is just really, really cool in, in Richardson. And so I would, I could definitely see myself living over there at some point. It just has a neat feel. And uh, so I think once he puts his touch on it and it's a part of that neighborhood that's kind of turning over, it's going to do really well as a midterm because the radius of, of the feeder, um, you know, the, the families that could use that as a midterm, I think are going to be really cool. So, uh, well, that's what I got going. Tons of open houses. I got uh, one more booked for this weekend. I'm looking to pick up another one. Um, I'm, you know, comping a ton of houses for investors. I'm, uh, I sent five properties to an investor yesterday to look at as possible purchases for rentals. I think they would actually make really good on-market rentals um, if we made a decent offer, but they're actually, the number's pencil. So just trying to make some stuff happen and uh, just trying to stay busy. So why don't we do a little bit of a market update? So the Dallas market, similar, it's uh, overall 41 days on the market. It's definitely gone up over the last month or two. Things are sitting a little bit longer and especially depending on which county you're in. Collin County seems to be you know, on the higher end of things, as far as the average goes. Um, One interesting statistic I did see is that between December and January, we added 3,500 active listings. And the, that actually is almost to the number that exactly what we went up last year. So from uh, December to January last year, it went up 3,500. And so this is just the time of year, December, November, December is a little slow. And then people start picking up in the spring. They start wanting to 
kind of make things happen. Uh, my open houses this last weekend, I had nine groups come through Saturday, nine groups come through Sunday, completely different areas of town, completely different price points. So hopefully the activity is picking up soon. And maybe by the time you get your Wiley house on the market ready to go, you'll get really good activity and maybe get some multiple offers. So what, what's, what's your timing over there, you think? Probably two weeks, a uh, week and a half, two weeks out from going on the market. So I've been watching it and there, there's really not a lot of inventory over there at all. So yeah, I'm excited to, I, I'm excited to get it out there. And, and, you know, the other cool thing with that particular property is this was just the right convenient deal. I mean, typically I, I think getting a flip in this area, unless it's like some kind of major damage, right? Fire, flood, you know, something like that. I think it's kind of rare to get into mm -hmm. an opportunity because these homes were built in the early 2000s, like 2002 build. And they're big homes and the price points are higher. So I just don't think there's a lot of typical opportunity for investors in this pocket. Mm-hmm. As much as I would like to do another one over there, but when you when you start looking, at, you know, and it's it's mind-boggling to me because I got licensed in 04. So to me, looking at a 2002 build, it's like, oh, it's a new house. And, <laughs> right. and we look at it, and it's, you know, it's a 20-year-old house, right? So yeah, they're dated. And and so now looking at comps and everything, it makes me feel good because most of them are all, all are dated and mm -hmm. more of the old world or traditional you know, finish yeah. out. And so, uh, of course, being able to update it and do, uh, you know, new paint schemes and design trends of, of today's, you know, 2024 market, we should do well. Uh, I think it's yeah. going to be, it, it's going to be super attractive. The other thing is uh, there's some new builds in the area that are about a hundred thousand dollars higher in price point than where we're going to be. And they're smaller and they're just really plain and simple man they're builder grade stuff just very basic like this house was originally mm -hmm. and um but it's you know whites and grays and just kind of some simplistic so it'll it'll be yeah. cool i mean again we talked about this before and, I, and i'm seeing this a lot with competition right now other flippers and i, I just wish i could tell them like it, it's worth spending the money to stage it like i mean oh, yeah. i think that the first quote i got was about thirty two hundred dollars and that was including doing the game room I think my budget was three grand, but I think I'm going to pull the game room out of it and just do the downstairs because the game room's mm -hmm. a game room. I mean, somebody can visualize and see what that yeah. could be, but it's worth it. Yeah, right? Staging I mean, it's crazy. It yeah, really does, I, I just think yeah. it's well worth it. You price it right, you stage it, it just takes any of that guesswork out of it. It's going to put it together. I mean, it's the same reason that builders make a model home and spend the money on the model home to walk you through and then you go walk mm -hmm. a spec build and you're like oh it's the same house yeah. same floor plan oh <laughs> okay <laughs> it's not nearly as sexy a different you know? vibe yeah. yeah yeah it's interesting um actually the open house i did on this last saturday it was a 1997 house but so many people commented on how well they had kept it up and they had just spent money through the years they had been there the whole time really upgrading and and doing it in a way that has paid off in kind of the neutral higher Timeless, end neutral they right. had really good marble and like really good tile that just isn't super trendy one way or the other it just aged really well and it also fit the style of the house it was kind of a it, it was tr transitional leaning more traditional yeah but their furniture kind of it was they lived there still and they had good style and they had drapes and like it was it just all worked. And so anytime people walk through, it was it was on a little bit of a higher end for the neighborhood, but it, no one complained about the price because it just felt right. And they had done such a great job. You know, compare that. I've got another client looking right now on the higher end of things. And 
he wants 2000 or before or 2000 or newer. Well, there's a lot of houses in that realm, you know, especially if you're looking at a 5,000, 6,000 square foot house, you know, to do a, even just a sort of a lipstick remodel to that. I mean, you're dropping serious money and a lot of these people have not, and you got the old school, just wrought iron banisters and old school wood and tons of trim. And it's just does not feel updated, but technically it is a, you know, 2000 plus. And so finding that combo of someone who's actually put some money into it, or maybe they just made really good choices a long time ago and it's aged well is, is super tough. So market tip of the week, like always stage your freaking house. It's (laughs) 2,500 to $3,000 stage your house, get professional pictures. You will uh, really, really do much better. So why don't we touch on a little bit of news? Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? From Dallas, Texas, the Flash, apparently official. There's good news and bad news. This is a massive story. Who wouldn't publish it? We landed on the moon! Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. A couple things. Well, we'll, we'll touch on three, three quick articles here. The big one for Tavis and I, we work for Keller Williams, and we've touched on it multiple times. There's been some national class action lawsuits. Some of them have been going for several years. Uh, A few of the smaller ones really came to a head earlier this year. They started to settle. Some of the big brokerages decided to settle. Well, finally, Keller Williams has settled one of these, I think, for $70 million. And they have agreed in principle, very similar to some of the other brokerages, to change some of their education to also not require that agents put a buyer's commission on their listings. And they're also not requiring their agents to join the National Association of Realtors. So, you know, how, what that looks like day to day, you know, right now it's not different, but I think, you know, the more these get settled, the more they get adjudicated on these different class action suits that are still going bigger, even bigger suits, more national suits. You know, it's inevitable that things are going to shift. I maybe it's anecdotal. Maybe it's like seeing the uh, the yellow Ferrari around town. All of a sudden, you see them everywhere. If you start paying attention, it's like, you know, I've started seeing more and more two and a half percent listings on the buyer side. I've been really staring at the MLS a lot. You know, and I don't know if it, maybe it's always been there and I just haven't seen it. But to me, you know, I know Open Door and those guys they do it. But there's more, you know, traditional brokers. I feel like are offering some of that. So maybe it's, maybe it's going that way, or maybe it's been like that the whole time, but we'll see. Have you, have you heard anything um, from Keller Williams? I've, I've tried to read what they put out, but is that basically your understanding of what Keller Williams decided to do? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the good news is he kind of waited it out, right? And a lot of these other people were settling beforehand. So I think it was more of a strategic move to to wait it out and then settle. And I mean, even though, you know, $77 million is a, a huge chunk of money, you know, and mind you, I mean, KW is, I, I forget exactly where we rank now, but I mean, we're definitely in the top, in the top two uh, internationally from, uh, from a privately owned non-public, you know, uh, real estate company. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he, you know, made the right move and, uh, ultimately, I think the settlement was uh, was a good thing, and we appreciate you know what Gary did and his approach you know in that you know I haven't seen a lot of the uh, backlash yet to kind of to see what the changes are going to be made, and it'd be interesting kind of the whole not having to be part of the uh, 
National Association of Realtors because that that's mm-hmm. always kind of been a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was more about the fact that, you know, as a NARA member, you're held to a higher standard as a realtor. And, you know, that's also how you gain access to MLS and, you know, all these different tools. And so anybody that was part of Keller Williams before had to belong to that uh, network, right? We had to belong to the National Association of Realtors. And there's fees and, and you know, quarterly fees and annual fees and everything that are, are part of that uh, association. So that'll yeah. be interesting to kind of see what happens with that and how that is uh, interpreted. Because, again, it, it's it's all about, you know, code of ethics and all these different, you know, things that kind of make us held to a higher standard. So it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to kind of see what happens yeah. with that. Yeah. You know, and, and if, if anything else, you know, I think it's on them to really come through as an education piece and say, this is the value proposition of being a member of us. You know, it's not just this expectation of, yeah, you just have to do it. If you want to call yourself a realtor, you have to be a member and, you know, I've never even thought about like, you know, well, what does this even mean for me? I just, well, you're just a realtor and you have these code of ethics. But, you know, for me mentally, I don't really know what differentiates their code of ethics versus the Keller Williams versus Texas State, you know, Trek and all that stuff. It's like, I right. just, just act a certain way, you know. So um, I think education on their piece, on their part, you know, I'm sure they do a lot of lobbying and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it'll be good. They're falling apart, you know, so they need to do something. Their PR team needs to do something because they're they're losing executives, they're losing membership. And so if they want to have any sort of say in, you know, the the national movement of uh, real estate, I, I think they're going to have to do something quickly uh, because I don't think they've settled actually on any of these and they, they could get hammered um, from an entity standpoint and a financial standpoint. It might really, really impact their ability to do business. So well, another, uh, another article that came out, you know, I don't know all the statistics. I just was like floored by the number, but Fox news, uh, business said an article that, uh, they did a special and they said one in 20 transactions for real estate on the, on the buyer seller side resulted in some sort of fraud, specifically wire fraud. Mm. And, uh, this is interesting because Aaron, when he was trying to wire his earnest and option money to the title company the other day, they're based in Denton. He lives in uh, Frisco. He's like, man, I don't necessarily want to drive over there. So they're figuring out this wire stuff. Well, there's all sorts of things you have to sign off on and we will never do this. And this is how we present it to you. And then this article popped up. I'm like, well, I guess there's, (laughs) there's a reason right there. You know, I guess it's very sophisticated. It looks very real. A lot of times somehow they know you're in the middle of a transaction and they'll send you a an email that looks just like your title company and says, hey, by the way, wire the money here. And you do it and you show up to closing and they're like, hey, uh, when are you going to wire that money? And they say, I did it yesterday. you know. And so fortunately, it seems like a lot of the banks are on board with trying to make it right and giving you your money back if, it, if they can prove like, hey, this is what... This is what I did, but man, that's kind of scary. One in twenty to know how many transactions are happening. You know, we've got eleven thousand active listings right now on the, the DFW MLS. It's like, man, uh, that is that is quite the number. Uh, that's not anything you've ever personally had to deal with, is it, Tavis? No. Um, years ago, we had a situation happen, and I can't remember. I can't remember the dynamic of it. I, I, I remember something happening. It, mind you, this was this had to be like 10 years ago, but I remember something happening. And I don't remember if it was specifically on our deal or if it was another deal, but it was, you know, it, it basically it's like what they said, you know, somebody hacked into the email and said, send the wire. And then, you know, the wire was sent and it's basically disappeared. And, you know, they had to track it back and figure out where it went and what happened to it and all that and, and get it figured out. 
you know, and I think yeah. uh, there was some kind of insurance or something that, you know, that played a part. But no, it happens. And, and you see these disclosures all over, you know, title companies' emails and, and bank emails, you know, for instance. And sometimes it's frustrating. Like <laughs> when I email back and forth with my banker, it's frustrating to me because I get this encrypted, you know, email back. And it's sometimes right. just a very simple question. And it's right. like, I get an email back with this encrypted message, log in here, password. I'm like, oh, I don't know my password. <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to read this stupid email. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, there may not be any, you know, valid information that's being passed forth, but I, I'm, I mean, ultimately, I'm glad they do it. And it just didn't. And there's a reason, right? Because uh, these cyber hackers are geniuses at this stuff, and once that money mm -hmm. moves around, it just disappears. So, uh, yeah. you know, there was there was an issue with a big title company. You know, you know, uh, one of the larger uh, firms a few weeks. Well, I think in December, Fidelity. You know, which is actually like the underwriter for multiple other entities that mm -hmm. do title as well. And they had a, a crazy security breach and um, kind of shut their stuff down for a few weeks. And I think they got it worked out. I don't remember ever hearing, you know, what the negatives were. But anyways, it's a real thing. So it's just it's just very important. Uh, one thing you'll see in the emails is just never send wiring instructions over email you know, they'll call and verify, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. So just very That's why important. I go into the lobby. I go into the lobby a lot <laughs> and they're about to open up a frost yeah. little mini, mini lobby right around the corner from my house. They, I may you know, they just this, did that at, uh, up the road from me. And I, I went in there yesterday for the first time and a little bitty frost uh, store Yeah, and uh, got cash out for one of my contractors that want to cash this week for whatever mm -hmm. reason and it's not normally a situation but it's like okay you know you scratch mine i'll scratch yours you know and let me right. let me do this but then i started thinking in my head after i pulled this cash out and like you know because there's that thing going now where you know people are watching you go into banks and uh -oh. get, get <laughs> yeah. cash and yeah. so people are leaving cash in their car don't do that by the way if you're going to get cash mm -hmm keep it on you on your person um and another thing they said is don't go from the bank you know and get cash and go directly home i made that mistake i didn't think about it till i got home and then i'm like looking around like did anyone <laughs> follow me <laughs> yeah but anyways uh you know that's another have thing to watch right? some of those uh we need to watch some of those mafia movies just to get some tips on how to there you to go move around with serious cash so yeah watch breaking bad again <laughs> uh yeah i mean there's there's just bad people out there i've got a buddy that's in the fbi and he actually works in the uh the digital cyber crimes unit and he we had dinner the other night and he was kind of telling us about you know just some of the crazy dating schemes and I mean, there's just people out there basically at every turn just trying to figure out how to steal your money. So you just have to really, you know, and I'm really trusting on some of the stuff, but yeah, yeah maybe going a little bit more analog, going into the, the bank and, uh, you know, figuring some of that stuff out will be good. Well, the third <laughs> article I uh, saw, which, you know, kind of in, impacts us and people I know is there's a senator, I think in Wisconsin, trying to introduce a bill. And it's not the first time they've tried to introduce this, but... The general theory is, and I'm sure the number would fluctuate depending on how they agree on it, but the general theory is, well, affordable housing is a problem, and a lot of these big corporations are buying up, you know, dozens and dozens of homes, and it's it's making it really hard for first-time homebuyers and people trying to find affordable housing to find houses, and so let's limit the number of houses that an entity can own. This lady had evidently uh, proposed 15 as the number, which I think is 
you know, of course, on on the surface, and I guess it depends on who your voters are in that area. That probably sounds amazing. But, you know, 15 homes, when you really start paying attention to serious investors, I mean, that's nothing to some of these people. And Mm -hmm. they're not these slumlord, oppressive type people. Megan and Dustin, Dustin, who was on the podcast, you know, own 22 doors over in Abilene. Well, they're just independent. I, you know, figured it out over the course of five years, how to do this and this, piece it together, just normal people. Should they be taxed at a higher rate because they own that many doors? I just think it's insane. Now, BlackRock and all these people that are coming in, you know, love George Roddy's story, but the year that they bought 3,200 homes, are we talking about that type of level? You know, should it be a thousand, you know, maybe these people that can come in and spend billions of dollars in the course of a few months and impact the overall value of an area really quickly. You know, I guess if that's what they're trying to to do, you know, my argument would be, you know, those types of people can operate at a scale that also makes things efficient. And if you have rent, there's also a ton of renters out there who will never afford a home, who don't want a home. And if these people can professionally manage it in a way that's better or more efficient or or safer or whatever for these people then why would we not want that either? You know, so I don't know. What is your, what is your take on the 15 home limit for investors? Obviously it's light. Um, I think that that is their goal, right? Is to limit these institution buyers <laughs> from buying up the property. And it, it said something about what was the, do you have it up in front of you to see it said in 2000, the year 2000 versus, you know, recently like the, no, number. I don't remember that statistic. Let's see. Okay. Yeah, there was some statistic about showing like the amount of properties owned by investors now versus 2000 is something crazy. Uh, yeah. I'm okay. They, I mean, More it says than, they think it's going to save up to 3 million affordable houses. That's kind of, they think if they put this re, this rule into place, it could open up 3 million units that are affordable to people who Investors buy still buying about 16% of all homes purchased nationwide in third quarter of 2023, more than double the share bought up by investors in 2000. So basically, you know, 8%, you know, back in 2000 and now about 16% buying in you know, 20, you know, in 2024 or 20, I mean, I guess the rub would be, you know, how do you prove, you know, are you beating those, those buyers out? Now they're going to sit on the sidelines is to get the rentals because they just absolutely can't afford it. I mean, you could look at it from the flip side, from a seller's perspective, you know, here's, here comes someone offering full price or close to full price asking. So then they get to walk away with more money. So who it says, uh, it says research published in 2021 found that since 2005, the number of residential properties owned by out-of-state landlords has quadrupled from 1,300 to 6,000. Most of the properties are single-family investments or or duplexes. Ohio is another big one, which um, we need to get my buddy Keith on here, who has a bunch of property in Ohio. You know, he, mm-hmm. he actually built a big portfolio here, like in Louisville, back in like 2008, 9, 10, 11, and, um, mm. and then somehow got connected and started buying some stuff up in uh, Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Um, Ohio is really affordable. And he's got over, he's got over a hundred doors now, but um, again, he's just shame on him. <laughs> just taking advantage of people in the Midwest, just sitting there trying to live their own life. The argument is in, in, I don't know a lot of the details, but I, I know like in Europe, for instance, like in London, like, it's it's made it to where it's very difficult for people to be able to buy a home, and so most people are renting a home, right? So I think that's the concern, and you got to think that you know an investor offer 
as we talk all the time, especially when these institution buyers were buying at pretty heavily, when interest rates were lower, uh, they were very competitive offers, you know, to the market because they are not only making the numbers work currently, but their idea is what's it going to be in five years and how do they gain the appreciation gain out of it? And so they were buying very competitive. I mean, close to retail is what these investors were buying. And again, it was a convenience buy, very simple, very easy, guaranteed close, same as cash. And so, yeah, it's made it tough, you know, over the last couple of years when you're competing against an investor like that as a consumer buyer, you know, it, it, it's made it tougher, you know, to compete. And, and I think that's probably where this pushback's coming is just from the sure. independent buyers going, you know, and, and then you got homeowners too, that are seeing the neighbor's homes being bought and rented versus, you know, owned by somebody and people get frustrated by that. But yeah. And I mean, devil's advocate, you know, I'm sure there's some benefit to it. I'm not going to pretend that there's not any benefit to limiting it, you know, that these huge hedge funds can come in and buy a thousand, two thousand homes in a certain really short period of time. But the cynic part of it and the precedent part of me is like, okay, look at the car market. You know, you have CarMax. They can, they buy 40 cars a day down here in Plano. And, you know, well, if I wanted to buy a, a used car, well, they're buying up all the used cars or, you know, how do you, you have all these franchises, you've got McDonald's all over the country. That's, you know, the local hamburger guy can't compete because McDonald's comes in and they take up all the business and they, they run, you know, small time people who really want to run a restaurant out of business because, you know, they're this huge corporation that can, you know, operate at scale. So there's businesses all over that operate at scale that are backed by billion dollar funds, you know, mm-hmm. because they can, come in and buy things and put their systems in place. And we're okay with it, with franchises and all that stuff. But when someone comes in and and does that with homes, it's like, oh no, we can't because, you know, these people really need to buy an affordable home. Well, you know, maybe someone wanted to to buy an affordable business and they can't, you know, because now it's, they they can't compete. You know, that's maybe not like the best comparison, but there's basically business that happens all over all the time. That's backed by huge, huge funds and we're not saying, well, that's bad. Don't do that. You can't put more money into that community because we really want the locals to to really be able to thrive. So to do that in this industry seems a little bit odd. Uh, but again, it's, I think you know it could be beneficial, but I, I think it's also very electable. I think it's really good key point of like, hey, we're really trying to work out affordable housing. We're really trying to work for you to be able to, to go out and live the American dream. And yeah. I think it's just really something good to talk about so, that it's easy to explain you know reading reading a little bit further into this you know that the, one of their goals here is that they would call it baldwin's tax and basically the tax would be implemented against people that own you know between 16 to 25 doors and then people who own 26 to 100 doors so they're saying like basically like a three percent a purchase price uh, for investors that buy 16 to 25 and then 5% uh, purchase number or, or 5% tax, I guess, on people that own 26 to 100 properties. And we're supposed to trust the local government to take that extra uh, yeah. 3%, <laughs> put it in some bank account, open up a grant system and offer that money to other first-time home buyers as some sort of like down payment assistance, like... Yeah, right. Yeah, basically they're they're talking about splitting it between a, a housing trust fund and a capital man- magnet fund that could build or re- rehabilitate over 300 
thousand housing and for extremely low income Americans to help finance two point seven million units. Yeah, I think like what you're saying, it's it's all a, a, like a push for the local government to manage this grant program to give back to you know homeowners and people that are in a you know bad spot, and then you know the government gives out this you know. Yeah, I'm sure that'll go well. Money, I'm sure there'll will. be no no fraud, no uh, odd things going on when you give the the government just yeah. millions of dollars just to well, try to figure out how to spend it. And, and how are they really going to know? I mean, when you have multiple entities, I mean, how are they really going to yeah, know? Yeah, LLCs, right? Yeah, anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I, I just think it's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our uh, <clears throat> let's move on to our real estate topic. I think this is a good one. We're not going to, you know, I think we actually might make this a, a real estate university episode here soon, but. We came up with, uh, we, we were talking about this, this Canyon Creek property that we, we walked the other day and there was just this real disconnect between what we felt like the value of the house was and what the homeowners thought. And, uh, so we came up with a really, really snappy four L's that, uh, <laughs> really impact the four L's that really impact a seller's value of their house that a lot of times they overlook. And so number one, of course, everyone you know, talks about location, location, location. Well, number one is location, but maybe not so much um, how you're thinking. So let's just quickly dive into the factors of location when it comes to selling your house. Now, this could be retail, but also could be to, you know, selling to an investor. So these are the things that people really just should pay attention to and, and be realistic about. And hopefully the agent that's working with you to list your house has this conversation with you to sort of give you a, a nice snapshot of what your property might be worth. So when it comes to, to location, of course, one of the, the main things that I dealt with on Mapleton and this Canyon Creek house was on Custer is the street. So being on a busy street, no bueno. Yeah. And, and again, mind you that the way we have to think about properties is we work backwards from the top side. And so the top side is usually a lot of the argument and that's where things begin because people have a, a, an unrealistic idea of what that value could potentially be and when you know these things starting with location you have to put a cap on that top of the value and say okay we have to start here and then work backwards and you know when you have the untrained homeowner or even the agents in some cases if they're just using dollar per foot as a comparison and they're looking at it as a whole and just going, oh, look, some of these houses, you know, and this was a golf course community. Of course, golf, the golf course houses, somebody may, may be buying it, tearing it down for six, seven hundred thousand dollars and then building a, you know, two million, two and a half million dollar home on it. And so that skews the numbers. People just have no idea on, on the comparison when they're looking at, you know, what their existing home is and what it could be worth. And they have this unrealistic idea. And then you have the tax assessed uh, uh, values that, um, you know, in this particular case, we saw a heavy, heavy reverse mortgage on this property. And then the tax assessed value was extremely high for the property, unfortunately. And that to them set the value of the property, right? Which mm -hmm. is totally incorrect because we were our arv was only about a hundred thousand dollars higher than what the tax assessed value was but in their mind that you know the tax assessed value was the value of the property essentially mm -hmm. right but so going into location the big thing about location is uh we talk about location 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 that's a geographical location what's the demand in that pocket this particular pocket 
it has a, a division between elementary schools and actually two different districts all in the same neighborhood and one creates more demand than the other so you have to kind of dissect that that's more of that geographical demand as what's going on in that pocket and what's the driving factor and how do you dissect between the different values and then you have the actual physical location and this particular case this was on an extremely busy street and therefore is going to take a hit you're going to have people that are going to offer you a percentage amount lower than something that's on an interior lot because of being on that busy street. Um, it's hard to park. It's hard to pull in and out of your driveway. All these different things are, are a main factor. And this was a very popular street, very well known. So it already has a stigma. As soon as you put that address out on MLS, people are going to push back on it because the knowing the address, right? Knowing the mm -hmm. street name. Uh, so therefore, it's going to limit that ability to push that value up. Now, if you really do it well and you get the right person in the in the door and they want to pay more than the other guy, okay, great. But you can't bet on that, right? And then you have other things. Um, so Busy Street is one of them. And you actually see this deducted in appraisals. If you guys are out there, look at your appraisals that your buyers are getting on properties they buy. See if you can get a copy of it. Just study them. The more that you study these appraisers, the more you'll understand how values work and that it's a lot more involved than just looking at a dollar per foot number. And, um, you know, the other factor would be, we, we talked about power lines. Yeah. What it backs to, right? So like it's a catch 22, as we were talking about off air, you could back to this jogging trail, which is really nice. You know, it's cool. you got a green belt, but the green belt has these big giant power lines. They don't necessarily bother me too much, but they bother a lot of people and not only, you know, we've talked about this before, how many different ways are you selling the property? You're selling it four different ways. You're selling it to the, the buyer, the buyer's agent, the inspector, and the appraiser. So one of those people are going to have a problem with it, right? Whether it's the buyer's agent or somebody's going to point it out. And the main reason that we as agents will point out things like this is to let the buyer know that they may be challenged with this in the future. You know, it may not bother them now. I mean, how many times have you gone into a listing appointment with a property that backs to a busy road or it sides to a busy street or it backs to apartments or it backs to commercial and the homeowner that owns the home goes, oh, I love it. It's quiet. I've got no issues. Like I backed mm -hmm. to commercial. No big deal. I got no neighbors looking in my backyard. I, it doesn't bother me. I love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. But somebody else may not. Right. And they may have yeah. the stigma before they walk in the door. And so it's just important that you always have these conversations with that with that owner that, hey, when, and later when you call me to sell it and I tell you we've got to price it ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars less than what your neighbor sold for across the street and you get mad at me, I'm telling you now that mm -hmm. we're going to have that challenge. Right. Like yeah. that we just have to prepare for it. And if you prepare for it and we buy it right now, it's not a big deal. Okay. Yep, so for sure. that's location. Number two L life expectancy. So <clears throat> there's units, <clears throat> there's systems in the, in the house that, uh, you know, we, we look at and, uh, you have your electrical, your plumbing, um, your air, your roof, your foundation. So these are huge, you know, systems that are going to be there. Now the foundation doesn't necessarily have a life expectancy. It could shift, you know, but your roof does, your 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 air units do, your electrical does, and your plumbing does. And specifically, 
you know, like this house that we bid on over in Richardson and, and a lot of the houses that Tavis is bidding on right now in, Pl- in Plano, I think you said probably 25 to 50% of the houses in Plano, pretty much it's just the part of town that was built, you know, pre-1980, mostly in the mid-70s, late-60s in these areas, they have cast iron plumbing. And there's just a life expectancy to cast iron. It's sitting in moist clay for years and years and years. It's being used. And at some point, it will fail. And so these the lifespan of these systems has to be taken into account. And so talk a little bit about, you know, I know this Canyon Creek one had this issue as well. And, and it was their electrical, uh, was that was the issue there. Yeah. And yeah. Cause I, I believe that that home was pure and beam and they had already changed a lot of the cast iron, I believe to PVC underneath the home. So that, that does help statistically uh, working under a pure and beam home, changing out cast iron to PVC is obviously much less uh, or much more affordable uh, than, you know, working with a slab home. So that's another thing that, you know, be aware of if it's a slab home, you're digging and tunneling and it's a, very expensive it's you know hundreds of dollars per foot per linear foot mm-hmm. that you're digging and tunneling under a home to change it out so yeah but it, it, the things that we were looking at was you know when, when you have pure and beam you also have to look at how many years of has this water been leaking on that floor in a bathroom mm-hmm. or you know the the water line to the fridge that was you know hidden behind the fridge you couldn't see it but when we walked on it it was squishy. And so yeah. not only is the subfloor bad, but then you've got stringers and, you know, uh, the structure under the home that needs to be addressed. So that was something that we saw as a big red flag. That's another thing that the real estate heavyweights could offer as a service. You know, we a little bit heavier. We could just walk pier and beam houses <laughs> and just like, hey, it's going to be squishy for you us. May, yeah. uh, Ms. Johnson, 115 pounds. You may not realize it. But that floor is a little soft because uh, when we walk on, when we walk in the house, we start finding problems. You're like, heck, you might want to pay attention you, to that. You know, the thing that gets me is always two story homes. Uh, you know, when you walk in that decking on the second floor and it's going, ee, 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 ee. Yeah, I'm, and I'm walking it and, <laughs> and me, I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm like, uh, you know, Hey, we need to put screws in there. So I'll tell my guys to do it. And then they go up there. We're like, we can't find any squeaky. And I'm like, hold on. Let me walk. <laughs> let me do yeah. it. It's squeaking. I'm Man, telling you. That's um, a great service we could offer. Yeah. That's great. So. Now, at, at electrical panels, I mean, there's several different brands out there that have been discontinued. Uh, they're going to get flagged on on the back end inspections. And um, one of the big tell alls is just that, you know, if where the panels located. Um, so back in the day, panels out of convenience were in master closets a lot of time, right? Or in bedroom closets uh, out of the way. But, you know, they soon realized that that was a fire hazard. If you had a breaker that failed and sparked and tripped and you had a bunch of clothes in there, uh, it didn't take much for all that stuff to ignite and catch on fire, burn your house down. So, you know, that they've changed that code now. So those panels need to be, you know, if it's in a closet and you need to keep all the home runs in the same location, you need to move the panel to the outside. It needs to be a waterproof panel, et cetera. But yeah, those are all different life expectancies that you and I were walking and just kind of ticking it up and going, okay, yeah, panel's old, needs to be changed. Not a big deal. We still buy the house, but we got to take that into account. HVAC systems, how old are they? How old is the roof? Roof looked okay, but it was, you know, plus 10 years. Most likely it's going to get flagged in today's day and age, even though it's got a 30-year shingle. Every inspector and the brother right now is flagging a roof that's more than five years old. 
you do a major renovation on this home, most likely it's going to get flagged. You need to kind of plan ahead. You know, so we're just kind of checking the boxes as we're going through. And, um, you know, that's what we're talking about with life expectancy is you kind of got to know things that even though that they're performing as designed, if you're buying the home as an investment, you're most likely going to have to go ahead and change them out. If you're buying it for your personal home, you know, you can tolerate it and then deal with it, you know, when those things fail. But if you're buying it as an investor, you need to probably plan on going ahead and changing those things out uh, during the project. Yep. So number three, we'll, we'll kind of go through these a little quicker. Number three is the lot. So this one over in Canyon Creek had almost a half acre, but it was on the busy street. It was a corner of a cul-de-sac, kind of a funky lot. And, you know, on paper, it's like, wow, it's huge, you know, but the setback, you know, you know, setbacks are sort of these legal requirements by cities that say you have to have this much distance from the street and the sidewalk and all these the different setbacks that were obviously in play at this house. And then, you know, the backyard had a pool and it was, you know, the, it, it was kind of pushed back towards the back of the property though. So the backyard itself wasn't that big. The front yard was pretty large, but then again, you're right on this really busy street. So they're advertising, well, it's almost half an acre. Well, you know, just, and it's a one story house, ranch style type house. It kind of spread out over the lot and like, well, it's, that's great, but there's just not a whole lot usable here. And so, when you're considering selling your house, you really need to consider, you know, what kind of lot do I have? Do I have a 40 foot lot, 50 foot, 60, 70? Is this a wedge corner that I can really, really market and say, Hey, this is actually different. This is a great, great backyard and really lean on that. Or is this lot, you know, kind of funky and you're going to have to fight that layout every time someone comes and looks at it and they kind of walk outside like, ah, this is a little different than the pictures. I'm not really sure about (laughs) that, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely something you have to take into consideration. Yeah, and then obviously the topography to the lot too matters, right? So you could have a really big lot, but it, it you know, you could have like an acre lot and the usability of your lot is point, you know, a tenth, right? It could be point one zero. that's actually usable because the back of your lot drops off 500 feet down a mountain, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Um, and, and so there's things like that, that you have to be aware of. And, um, you can't just look at the paper, you know, value, but you know, that home we, we walked in and one of the first things out of the homeowner's mouth was, Oh, this is a great lot. Did you see how big this is? This is 0.44 mm-hmm. of an acre. Yeah. And we walk out in the backyard and it's like, almost like your typical Plano house. You walk outside, right. it, it's got yeah. mostly all pool, very little bit of yard, and all that was pool, the, all neighbors fence. That's yeah, what you can see. You know? <laughs> and that was, you know, that was your backyard. And so that's what you run into that people don't think about. And the other part is, and I think this goes, this might go into your next, uh, next, next thing about layout and floor plan. But the, uh, the issue with that particular home is the garage was all the way on the left side of the home where the, where the extra lot size was. And then you're like, well, how do you use that side of the space, right? How do you, mm-hmm. if you do close that in and you do expand in working with this existing home, how do we even make that attractive? Because you've got a garage that's blocking everything from accessing into the house. So mm-hmm. it's another thing to think about, but let's go on to the yep. next one. Next one, like Tavis said, number four, layout. So <clears throat> big deal, uh, you know, the open house I did on Sunday all the bedrooms were upstairs and the laundry was upstairs. And uh, oddly enough, not a ton of people who came through mentioned this <coughs> as sort of a problem. But in general, I would say, you know, if you don't have any bedrooms downstairs 
And if the laundry's upstairs, these are going to be layout issues. They're going to be a problem. And if you have a house that's kind of winding, funky, oh, you got to go through this room to go get to that bedroom. You got to be really creative about ingress and egress of like, how am I even supposed to use the, you know, I've got to go through the master bedroom to get to the laundry room, things like that. Not to mention, you know, just style of, hey, I really like more of an open concept. This, this house is really closed off or uh, this house is way too blown out. I want some more walls. When you have layout issues, you might get used to them, you know, and it might make all the sense in the world for your family to have, you know, three living rooms, one for everybody. But someone else coming in there might say, like, I'm not even really sure what I'm supposed to do with this room. There's not a closet in here. I can't make it a bedroom. It's right off the entryway. You know, I'm going to have to put a wall up here to make it like they have to like the minute they start walking in the room, the house, they start getting having to get creative about how would I do this? How would I do that? And the more you can avoid that, the better. And, you know, this house, the layout is actually decent on this specific house. Uh, I would say the downside for this from a layout perspective is really just a construction. They had a lot of the the uh, sunken living rooms, that sort of thing. It's not really a layout thing, but, you know, just the actual in- interior design of a house, the layout of that stuff really can play a role. And if, if you're having to explain things um, to people, that's a downside. And you need to take that into consideration when you're coming up with the price right. for the listing. Yeah. If people are walking in scratching their head, that's, that's something I always kind of use as a, as a term, right? If you're scratching your head and going, what, what are we doing here? What's the space? What is this for? You know, staging can help with that uh, in a simple home. It, it, you know, we talked about staging earlier that can really help, you know, with that situation because it identifies what that space is actually used for. I'll, I'll double back on something you said regarding the floor plan. So, you know, having all bedrooms up and, and everything else. So the, the caveat to that is make sure you study what's going on in the neighborhood. If it's a neighborhood and an area or a subdivision that all bedrooms are up, then that's not a bad thing. Right. Because the, that's what you get for your money. That's the subdivision. That's the area you're looking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like huge subdivisions and things like that built out in Fort Worth. And that's how all the floor plans are. Like all the bedrooms are up. If you ever have spent time up in the Northeast at all or the northern part of the United States, a lot of homes up there, all master bedroom or master bedroom and all bedrooms are up and living quarters are down. Hmm. It's just the way homes are built. So here in Texas, uh, along the way, you know, you, you've got a lot of one story ranch style homes. And so people have gotten used to having all bedrooms and living quarters on the same level. And if it goes into a two story home, then they've gotten into, well, let's, let's put the master quarters down and then let's put secondary bedrooms up. And so mm-hmm. we've gotten used to that, but other parts of the country don't operate that way. Again, it goes back to just looking at what your competition is and are you the oddball where everybody has a master down and you have a master up, then you need to adjust. If you're in a situation where everybody has masters up and bedrooms up, okay, great. Just make sure you're comping to those specific things. And so that's something to to just be aware of. That's not necessarily always a bad thing, but you have to make sure you've got something to to connect to. Definitely. Well, that was a, a long conversation on the four L's. This is some groundbreaking information here on and when you're selling your your home, you need to consider. But I think it is really great because we just went through that with this person and, and it really does come into play all the time. Some of these things that we, we consider, especially from an investment side that sellers may or may not um, consider. So definitely thank you so much for listening today. It's run a little bit long. Please share this with a friend. We are approaching a thousand downloads, which, you know, is is the first milestone for this podcast 
uh, we're, we're getting super, super close. So honestly, this podcast or the next one might break that. So do us a favor, try to share this with a few extra people this time, share it, give us a review, try to get us over that thousand download um, mark and make me feel good, make me happy for the day, you know, for nothing else, just do it for that. So um, you can find me on Instagram, Dallas Real Estate Guy. I'm on Facebook, posting all the time about uh, activity I'm doing. If you if you are, are out there looking for investment homes, um, I'm on the MLS a ton lately. I'm trying to find rentals for a few folks or, you know, we just found a midterm rental for someone. So I'm happy to scour the MLS, try to help you out. I know Tavis is out there, you know, bidding on houses left and right, trying to find another flip. He's finishing up Wiley soon. I would love to get into a flip here soon. So if you have something that's not MLS appropriate and you think would be better to be sold cash, you know, kind of quickly, definitely give uh, us a, a call. Tavis would do a great job to come out and kind of explain the whole process to you, how to come up with these numbers. And so uh, please reach out to us there. Tavis can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Tavis Westbrook, Travis without the R, Tavis Westbrook Designs. If you need blueprints, design work, 3D renderings, all that stuff, also very doable. So until next time, hopefully we're going to come up with another interview here soon. We're going to find some brilliant person in Dallas to interview. Uh, Maybe your friend that has stuff up in Ohio. That'd be awesome. And uh, we will come with you with another interview here soon. Until then, thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. 